Welcome to Humanitu. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of this podcast series about humanness and creativity. Today I'm talking with Chef Brother Luck. Brother is the owner of two restaurants in Colorado Springs, Four by Brother Luck and Lucky Dumpling. And he's got a new project underway too, even in the heat of the economic and health crises we're all living right now, the Lucky Lounge. Brother has also been a crowd favorite in the Celebrity Chef universe of the Food Network, where he was a finalist on Chopped, and where he beat Chef Bobby Flay on the network show, Beat Bobby Flay. You also might recognize him and his work from Bravo's Top Chef, seasons 15 and 16. We talk about some of that Top Chef experience in this conversation, and his being named a James Beard Awards semifinalist for Best Chef this year. But if you know this podcast at all, then you know that those highlights are not where we're going to live in this conversation. There's a lot of deeply human stuff in Brother's story, and he lets himself be vulnerable and honest and real in sharing it, and that's why I reached out to him. We get into some traumatic and life-altering stuff from Brother's early years, lessons he learned from his dad, and then the road he took when his dad died way too soon. We get into mental health and the dark emotional space Brother was in a couple years ago when something, call it divine intervention or whatever it needs to be called, shook him out of it. We talk about facing fear and making bold decisions even when the chips are down, like now, when he's taken on and building out the Lucky Lounge. We talk about Brother's hashtag, No Luck's Given, and how and why he uses social media and public platforms for good, for community, for inspiration. And we talk about more, of course, always more. Here's my conversation with the talented and the real Chef Brother Luck. Brother, welcome to Humanity. I'm so glad to have you here with me. Absolutely. Absolutely honored. You know, you and I have not met in person yet, but, you know, in our messages prior to this, I kept forgetting to tell you that you actually have met my son and wife. My then five-year-old son, you were giving a talk at Welcome Fellow in Colorado Springs. He wanted to see you. So my wife took him and then she took him up and met you so he could meet you afterward. And I don't know that you recall that. I'm sure you meet a lot of people. But I just wanted to say thank you myself for that. Now that we can can one on one be able to say that and just to you know, let you know, maybe you already know that stuff really stands out in a kid's memory. So I guarantee he's going to be the first one listening to this episode of the podcast. That's, you know, I'm, I'm honored. You know, I, I I'm always blown away by the reach and, and I'm very thankful for the platform that I've been given just because, it, you know, we take it seriously. You know, I think it's 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 a responsibility and, you know, make sure you're conveying the right messages and hopefully inspiring people. I appreciate it. Now, I want to talk about when you were a kid. I mean, obviously, you are a well-known chef now. You've been on what I would think are three of maybe the biggest chef competition shows that are out on TV. And we might talk about some of that in a bit. But first, you were born in San Francisco you spent your early years there. We're talking 80s, I think, into the 90s, maybe. Uh, and I'm curious what the scene was around you then. It was a different San Francisco. What was your childhood like? What do you remember being around you, the environment, the people, the influences? Yeah, um, you know, San Francisco, for me growing up in the in the, in the extremely early 80s was, was a lot more um, free. Um, there was a lot more... Uh, uh, liberal mindset. It was, it was, you know, I don't know. It was happiness for me. It, it was just kind of growing up in a, in an area where you don't know anything's wrong. 
So everything's just new and everything's exciting. And, you know, walking through Embarcadero BART station or, you know, taking a trolley or being down at the pier or even, you know, being at the, the civic center and, and seeing the homeless camps back then. I mean, it's just none of it felt like it was, you know, poverty or wrong or it was just it's just what it was. You know, my parents love San Francisco and I love growing up in the Bay Area. It's it's always going to be home. But uh, yeah, it was just it was happiness. And, and speaking of your parents, you've talked a little bit before about them being performers, right? They were getting out in the world. Can you tell me more about that? I'm curious. I think China was even part of that. I mean, it sounds like a really interesting history that they had. Yeah, yeah. My parents were uh, both dancers. So, you know, they traveled around the world uh, performing shows. And, um, you know, the, the big part of their, their time was spent in Asia. So it's one of the one of the reasons why uh, when my mother got pregnant with me, they came back to San Francisco. They, they were kind of on that path and that flight way. And, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why we grew up in a, in a dominant uh, type of, of Asian culture. I mean, you know, I went to a Japanese preschool and, you know, we lived right off of, of, of Gary Street. So it was like, it was just such a big part of, of, of growing up because they were still so immersed in that culture. I'm curious about how that might have influenced you with them having, you know, it, it takes courage to be out there in the world, to dance, to be creative, to perform, to be out in front of people. Those are some things you do in your own ways now as far as being in front of people and uh, having an influence in, in that way. How did that maybe get into you? Did you hear the stories growing up where they would talk about these great things so that you knew there was a bigger world out there? You knew that there were things that you were capable of or, you know, how, how did that come into your awareness and maybe influence yeah. what you do with your life? You know, I, I don't think it's it's that I knew that there was this big world that, that existed. Um, you know, there was a curiosity, uh, but I never was able to really understand it or comprehend it as a child. Um, for me though, uh, my father always wanted to be, want, wanted me always to be on television. And, uh, he used to put me through, uh, modeling classes. He used to put me through acting, uh, classes and, you know, I would do these photo shoots and it was a big part of my childhood for, for, uh, you know, growing up in San Francisco was he had this dream of me being on television, which, which, you know, really fed into me being a Leo and, be in the center of attention and always, you know, trying to take that in a, in a crowd. And, um, ironically, you know, you fast forward 30 years later and, um, I end up on TV and, you know, kind of fulfilling everything that he wanted for me, uh, just in my own way. So it's, uh, I always think about that. It's pretty funny. Um, you know, but as far as like traveling the world, I think eventually that's what led me to, uh, Japan is I wanted to understand, what was their uh, connection and, and why they loved Japan so much. Um, so when I had the opportunity to go study in Japan, uh, that was a big part of my essay that I wrote um, to secure my, my scholarship to go. And, and it, it, was, it was unique to kind of walk in their footsteps um, in my own way um, and understand what, you know, I, I looked at photos when I was a kid or I heard the stories when I was a kid about their time in Japan and then getting the experience it for myself as a chef. Your dad was Creole though, right? So he came from what we're saying, Louisiana. Yeah. yeah. So my, 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 my mother's from Louisiana. Um, she's Cajun. My father's Creole. 
Uh, so his mother's from Louisiana, uh, but they, my father was raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, my mother was raised down in um, uh, in Slido, which is just outside New Orleans. Uh, but roots are all there. You know, my grandma, my grandmother's family and my dad's side are all from Appaloosa. So, you know, Cajun Creole is a big part of our heritage. Um, you know, something I've I've personally take, taken responsibility to learn more about and understand Creole people in this country and, and you know, our history and what we've done and uh, what we were known for. And, you know, really just trying to find that identity. What are Creole people known for? Uh, well, Creole people were the first people of color um, in this country to have an education and also own property. So, you know, when you look before the Louisiana Purchase, that was a big, that was a big deal. You know, they had white skin, but then they had, you know, blue eyes and, you know, they had blonde hair, but they were considered black or mulatto. Um, you know, so it was a mixture of, of Indian and French and African and Spanish. Um, so you had all of these, these races that were considered to be Creole people and they spoke a variety of languages. They spoke Spanish, they spoke French, they spoke English. And, you know, that was a big part was they were able to get access um, to to property rights because they weren't really classified. You know, when you look past the Louisiana Purchase and, and rights were starting to be taken away, uh, they became activists for um, the black community just because they were able to 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 help. They were able to advocate. They were able to, um, you know, translate and, and give information. So. It's a it's a unique it's a unique culture that's very indigenous to to Louisiana because of of all the trade that happened in those ports. You know, I ask about the Creole uh, part of your history because I think it was on Top Chef where you actually had talked about in one of those vignettes about how your dad had taught you a recipe for dirty rice when it was a school assignment. You were fifth grade, ten years old. He teaches you this, and that's only a few weeks before he dies. Again, you're ten. Yeah. yeah. And I'm curious what you remember about that experience, if if that one in particular stands out because of how that ties to food and your cooking. And one of the, you know, I, I suppose, last lessons you got to have with him experiences and, and all that. Yeah. You know, I think as a chef, food is memory. And I'm constantly chasing the ghost of my past to understand myself. Um, and I do that through food. You know, I'm, I'm able to to look at a, a family recipe, whether it's mine or someone else's, and and really channel what the thought process was, you know, how they, they wrote the recipe, what kind of ingredients they were using, what their lifestyle was like, um, where in the world were they? Those things always click for me when I when I cook. You know, for me personally, that was a, that that was a moment that stood out just because you know, of the traumatic experience I was about to experience. Um, we were, we were, I was in fifth grade. We were um, asked to come home, uh, collect a family heirloom recipe and bring it in. And we were going to do a class uh, cookbook. And I went home and asked my father, I said, you know, I need a recipe for school. And he gave me dirty rice. And I remember being so embarrassed because it had like chicken liver and gizzards and peppers and onions and it just didn't sound appealing and i remember being embarrassed and, and ashamed of that recipe because everyone else was bringing in like snickerdoodles and you know these <laughs> you know cheesecakes and there, there, there was all kinds of like fun holiday you know dessert type recipes and i'm bringing in i'm bringing in uh dirty rice and uh you know i turned in i turned in the recipe uh we made the cookbook 
And then he passed shortly after that, a few weeks after that. And uh, years later, you know, I, I still have this cookbook. I, years later, um, I came across it. I, I was probably, I was probably 20, 21 years old. And uh, I made it at work. I made it, I made it at work. Um, and I thought it was, I thought it was, you know, really special to kind of, you know, cook through that because I, I realized I didn't have any other recipes from him. Uh, and my father was a phenomenal cook. He was a, he was a great baker. You know, he loved to be in the kitchen. I have lots of memories of him, you know, dancing around on Thanksgiving day, making collard greens and, and macaroni and cheese and cookies and, and, and all that stuff. But to have like his, 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 his thoughts, um, written on paper, uh, it's almost a form of immortality. And and that's something that, that really sticks with me is like the importance of getting your thoughts down and sharing them with your people because, you know, tomorrow's not promised. Right. You know, I mentioned my one son, I'm a dad to two sons. And I think about, you know, teach, teach, teach. It's, it's, it's what I focus on almost relentlessly, like maybe even to a fault. And, and part of it is because there's this thing in the back of my mind that I might not be around long enough to teach them everything I have to teach them. And I want to make sure that if something happens that I leave them with something. And you, as you just explained, were a boy on the other side of that kind of experience. And so it's those lessons that, you know, I, I am hearing from you that I find special. And I want to ask you about a specific one because you also have shared about a time when you were nine so your dad was still with you. You got in trouble in school. You were living in L.A. at the time. You got caught by a teacher with a knife. 1992, some significant things going on in L.A., especially at the time. I do all that just to set up, if you don't mind taking away what that story is. Why did you have the knife? What was going on? And most importantly to me, to hear how your dad handled that that teaching opportunity yeah. for you. Yeah, that was um, that was a powerful moment that I, I didn't really understand until recently with with everything that that's going on in today's society as far as you know Black Lives Matter and protesting and um, you know the rioting that 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 was happening at the at the time and you know to to really go back in time and, and look at 1992 and and the Rodney King riots, the LA riots that were were happening at that time. You know, that's all that we saw in the news. That's all that that's all media was pushing on us. And we didn't have Facebook back there. We didn't have, you know, the, the communications that we do today. So for me to, to understand that, you know, the world was on fire, you know, there, there was danger at, at nine years old. That was, that was something that was pretty powerful. And I think it just goes to show you like how far media has a reach to children, how much children take in. And, you know, for me, it was a concern, you know, I carried a knife to school and I got caught with that knife and, when the teacher asked me, um, you know, why did I have this knife? I said, it's because, you know, there's riots going on and I want to be able to protect myself. So, you know, my father, upon hearing this, wanted to know, you know, when he heard the story, he did one of the most, uh, you know, powerful things that I think uh, a father could do was, was use it as opportunity to teach a lesson. And he took me down to, you know, Watts and South Central and we cleaned up the riots, you know, everything had just ended and, you know, there was still fire smoldering and, you know, we, we swept up businesses that had been burned down. We handed out waters uh, to people on the streets. We, we served food. You know, I, I remember getting interviewed by the local news 
with a with a mask on, um, you know, as a young boy cleaning up the streets in L.A. after it. And, and he just kind of reinforced, like, you know, when we when we ride, it doesn't we're, we're hurting our own communities. And, and that that was something that was very powerful for me just because, you know, he wanted me to understand, even though, you know, your mother's white and your father's black, you know, you have a responsibility to be aware of your heritage and the people who came before you and, and know the power of, of helping your community and, and being an advocate for your community. Right. It, it's amazing. And like you said, you know, with the things going on recently, uh, that that really came back to you and, and landed in a different kind of way. And yeah, I brought that up because, you know, I'm hoping that there are those times in 10, 20, 30, 50 years that I will have taught things today that my sons will, will hold and make, make use of later, you know? So during your first season on Top Chef, you talked about getting into trouble as a teenager too. So what we just went through there, that wasn't the first time that you encountered some things, but that you were surrounded by gangs and violence and those things. And I'm curious, were you involved in that or just surrounded by it? Or what was the influence impact of that on your life? Did you see a path happening? And how did you segue from that to the one that you're still writing now? Yeah. You know, when my father passed away, it was sudden. It was quick. And there was nothing put in place for us to to be taken care of afterwards as far as life insurance. You know, so bills are still due. People still want their money. Um, rent still comes around on the first. And, you know, my mother, uh, who, who was a widow at the time and was going through, you know, a tough, a tough patch, had this responsibility to raise two young men. You know, it's my brother and myself. And we're three years apart. I'm the older brother. And, uh, you know, I was 10, he was seven and she didn't, she didn't really understand. I mean, she was, I think my mother was probably 30 at the time, maybe 20. No, she was 20, 29, 29 years old. And, um, I, I look at that, that time frame, and, you know, I understand it now, but at the, at the time I didn't understand any of it. It was just, it was pain and it was, it was loss and it was hurt. And, uh, you know, we, you have to live within your means. So, you know, we lost the place we lived. We, we moved to a more urban environment and, you know, you move into certain neighborhoods and, you know, you, you become a part of that neighborhood and, and that neighborhood was not the most, uh, safest neighborhood. You know, there was, there was a lot of individuals in that neighborhood that, you know, did what they had to do to survive and, and did what they did for pleasure. And, you know, you become a, a product of that environment. So for me, you know, hanging around the the pimps, hanging around the the drug dealers, hanging around the you know the the gang members, like that was just those were the people of my society. And you know, you start to watch and learn and and absorb, and you know, eventually you end up a part of things. And and for for many years after that you know, that was, that was my world. That's what I was around. That's all I knew. And, uh, it was because I didn't have any supervision. You know, my mother was, was trying to figure out, you know, what she was going to do and how she was going to make things happen. And, uh, you know, I was, I was lost in that. I, I you know, I, I knew that I was just suppressing pain and it was through, you know, whatever I could to, to, whatever I could do to, to numb that. I mean, that was, that was a big part of it was, uh, 
was was really just you know get into whatever I could and not and not have that stress not have that that feeling of you know loss or pain or neglect it was it was just the I don't know the, the aggression the drugs the 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 violence all all of that was extremely exciting and and fun on a day-to-day basis uh, but it wasn't until I got into um program when I moved to Phoenix when I was 16 uh that that took me out of that mindset you know it was it was really getting into culinary arts and that changed changed everything for me where were you living when you were in the neighborhood where you were surrounded by those things were you in Los Angeles at that time no, I was back in the Bay Area. So my father, we, my father had moved us back up to the Bay Area before he passed away. We were living in Vallejo, California, and then, uh, you know, he had shortly passed. Uh, I think at that point we were living in Concord, and then we ended up moving out to uh, Alameda and Oakland, and then eventually we ended up in in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, but really, all over the Bay Area. I mean, it, you know, Bay Area is a is a, is a big world over there. It's, it's it's its own world. It's its own mindset with multiple neighborhoods, and you know we were constantly getting kicked out of wherever we were at because we just didn't know how to behave. You know, and 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 my house was the spot. It was always the spot. It was the kicker spot. So it was always where all the homies hung out. Uh, no matter where we were at, that was the kicker spot. So you know we got kicked out of a lot of places and uh, moved all around the Bay Area until eventually um, a good friend of the family. He came to visit. He he was living up in in Arizona. He came to visit and saw just how how crazy we were living. And uh, he put me and my brother on a plane and moved us to Arizona. And uh, my mother eventually followed suit. But uh, yeah, that was the. I feel like the reason that man was on this earth was was to get me out of California and and, and to give me a chance. Do you have contact with any of? your friends, uh, the people that you were around during those years that now see where you've gone, what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, so, social media has allowed that, allowed that connection. But, you know, when I was, when I was probably 19 years old, I, I cut off connection to pretty much everyone. You know, I, I, I became uh, submerged in, in my, my craft, uh, which was cooking uh, my job, going to school, uh, my relationship at the time, who's not my wife. Um, you know, I, I, I built a whole new world. And, and I, I always think that when people say you're a product of your environment, you're, you're, you're an example of the people you keep, um, that's extremely true. You know, once I cut those people um, out of my life, I was able to, to change my trajectory. And uh, it's interesting now to, you know, see these people through social media, um, rebuild relationships um, and reminisce. But at the same time, I'm no longer that person that I was. You know, I've, I've, I've gone a completely different uh, direction. And, you know, some still live that same mindset and still are in those same worlds. And some have gone on to do great things. You know, I'm just I'm very fortunate to be one of those that, uh, you know, got out. So when you were a teenager, you did make that transition. You're talking about, I think, vocational school. You went to culinary school. You were working jobs with it. And I'm wondering about the fire or the passion that was in that. What What do you think had you so hooked that you were so focused that you would just focus so much on that craft? Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I've, I've thought about that a lot. You know, a lot of people always ask me, like, how do you find cooking so young? Because I mean, I've been in kitchens since I was about 14. I don't think it was I, I had this, like, passion to, to be a chef. I didn't have this passion to, 
end up on television or, you know, for me, it was, um, I had really good role models uh, at 16. I had, I had chefs that gave me really good, really good advice and, and were, were, were positive male role models. And I hadn't had a positive male role model for the last, you know, six, seven years, you know, since my father passed, everything was always so negative. Everything was so violent. So to have, you know, these chefs holding me accountable, giving me discipline, setting expectations, uh, giving me direction, um, complimenting me, you know, these, these were things that I wasn't used to. So I became very thirsty for that attention. And, you know, I performed to get more of that attention. And, and, and I realized throughout my entire career, I, I've, I've literally chased that attention, that, you know, that recognition, um, that positive reinforcement, which has made me great at what I do and has allowed me to climb, um, you know, the ladder as fast as I have. But it was because I was looking for, you know, that pat on the back, that good job that I didn't have as an adolescent. Well, and now you have a social media following with the things that you do and the influence that now you ripple out to other people. I mean, tens of thousands of followers, you share these Instagram stories and things like where you got suspended as a kid and, and your dad took you down there to clean it up, uh, things like that. And in this country right now, I'd say we're pretty short on proper leadership. But some of those things are things that you're speaking out on. And, you know, I, I see you as a leader. There's leadership in the things that you're doing, not only in running a kitchen, but beyond. So I'm wondering about your perspective of leadership and how you view yourself and your I don't know, responsibility or at least what you want to be or how to serve as a leader in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I enjoy the social media platform that I, I've been given because it allows me to speak. Um, but I'm, I'm very uh, cognizant of, of ensuring that my message is, is honest, it's true, it's real, and it's not forced. And, and that's something that I'm constantly um, I mean, there'll be gaps where I don't go on social media just because I don't feel like what I have to say right now is either right or um, is, is, is in the right mindset. And, and I don't want the message to come across as, as wrong or, or forced. You know, but I, I think it's, it's about being real. I love that people follow me for that reason. You know, I'm not trying to be an Instagram star or, you know, a, a celebrity on TV. I, I could care less about all of that. You know, for me, it's about hopefully inspiring someone to make a change in their life. And, you know, I don't care if it's, it's one of our soldiers or if it's, you know, uh, a mother who's dealing with domestic violence or it's an adolescent who's, you know, troubled and, and, and in the system, or if it's, you know, someone that's dealing with depression and, and, you know, suicidal thoughts. I, I think, you had this opportunity to share your story and your story is powerful. You know, your story is not about you. And as, as hard as it is to, to relive your story, your story is meant for someone else to hear. So you have to go through that pain each time to connect to someone. I love that. Part of what I say and when I describe humanity and the purpose of these conversations is that for listeners, like myself right now, listening to you, what we do is we hear ourselves in, in your story. Right. So it, like you just said, you share these things and it's the people and how they receive them and how they touch them and, and benefit them, inspire, whatever it is. 
yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's huge, you know, that, that's what it's about. So, you know, I, I speak and, and interact with individuals that, you know, relate to my story because I, I feel like that's where I can, I can make the biggest impact or, or the biggest difference is because it's real. You know, I'm not, I'm not preaching to you because I don't understand this. or I read this in a book. I'm preaching to you because I lived it and, right. and people, people connect to that. Like, I want to talk about what you're doing during this time of the pandemic, uh, talking about being honest, being real, there's struggle, there's fear, there's emotions. But what I also see a lot from you in what you're sharing through Instagram and these things is optimism, positivity, you, you keep on going. And, you know, that's uplifting, it's encouraging. And, you know, it's been an unthinkable unexpected experience for you. You mentioned your wife, Tina, she's part of the business, right? I mean, how, how have you managed to get that courage up when you're feeling what you're feeling on the difficult side, but share these positive messages with other people to keep the right things going? You know, I, I share it because I'm scared every day. And, and I know I'm not alone in that feeling. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm I sit in a lot of, of discussions and conversations with other uh, business owners that are, are going through it just like I'm going through it. You know, I'm, I'm fighting like hell to keep my businesses alive and, you know, be responsible and, and protect the safety of our team members and our guests and, and myself. You know, <laughs> that's one of the hardest parts is like, you know, you have to take care of yourself, too. If you're not around, how do you help people? Um, right. But, you know, I, I think sharing my fears and insecurities and, you know, my, my aspirations and hopes um, and, and positive messages gives people something to relate to and, and make them feel like they're not in it by themselves because they're not. It's we're all dealing with this and, and we don't know what tomorrow looks like. We don't know if there's another shutdown. I'm, I'm very fortunate to have survived that first part of this. Um, but what happens on part two? What happens on part three? Um, this is, this is such a tough time. And, you know, I, I'm responsible for 50 people, you know, 50 families that depend on me to make good decisions that depend on me to, to be responsible. And, um, you know, that first COVID shutdown really taught me how vulnerable we were. So I've literally transitioned my entire business mindset to, to not working in that same style of, of, of operation that business plan doesn't work so you know uh, you, you've even managed to expand at lucky dumpling you're building out next door for a lounge yeah i mean that's <laughs> that's the scariest thing i'm doing right now um, yeah i mean you know it, it it's something that i i've literally been waiting on for seven years um i started my business in that space uh seven years ago uh subletting that kitchen so you know i've always been a part of that venue um, and that tavern that was there, uh, decided that, you know, they were done. They, they couldn't, they couldn't survive this COVID, uh, portion. So, you know, they let the space go. And that's one of those moments where, you know, there's never a good time to expand. There's never a good time to build something, but opportunity is opportunity. And, you know, you get that door in front of you, you know, you're going to stare at the door, you're going to kick it down and start running. And, and, and that's just kind of where my mindset is right now is it's like, it's risky. You know, we're going to add on another 1500 square feet. You know, there's more expenses that incur because of that, but 
let's look beyond this next six months. Let's look at the next three years. What does that market look like? If we can survive this time frame and absorb this and, and, and really build something cool, how does it pay off in the long run? You know, and I've always just kind of looked at the, the stages of my decisions. You know, I'm very, I calculate a lot and I, I do my homework and my research. Um, and I don't just jump into projects um, just on emotion. I, I jump into them with thought and intention. And, uh, you know, when you look at something like Top Chef, Top Chef was a horrible time to go film that show. You know, yeah. we, were open, we were opening four. I mean, we spent the last four years trying to get to that point of opening a restaurant of that magnitude and that size. And then you want me to leave for eight weeks and, and have no communication with my business and know if it's even surviving. Like that, that was a tough time, but we knew the payoff on the back end was, was huge. So I kind of look at, at the expansion of Lucky Dumpling like that right now is this is going to create something that's going to be amazing for us in, in, in the long, in long term. You're talking about being bold in the face of what could be tremendous fear that would paralyze other people. And that's, uh, yeah, I'd wondered about that eight weeks too. When I watched season 15, when you went on Top Chef, you know, I think you're introducing yourself or something. It's like, just opened my business. I'm like, oh my God, what, how, you know? And, and I love hearing the story, a little bit of, of the spirit behind this and the attitude and the willingness to do it thoughtfully, but to do it. Yeah. And, and, that, and that, that's where a big part of that no luck's given comes from is, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a conversation I was having with a, with one of my PR people at the time. And, and that conversation, uh, the, the term no luck's given came up and, uh, you know, I, we really attributed that to like, uh, perseverance, courage, and determination. It's, it's not being scared and being paralyzed. Like fear is always going to be there. So you have to learn how to manage the fear. You have to learn how to embrace the fear and, and, and utilize the fear because if you know, fear is not going away, then you have to harness it. You know, you have not, you have no option, but to confront it. And, and, you know, you, you don't have the option to flight. You, you, you've got to just start to fight and, and take it on. I want to talk about no lucks given a little bit more that also pertains to uh, mental health, well-being in, in that vein, right? Isn't that part of, it's a hashtag, no lucks given. Mm -hmm. And again, so I brought up Top Chef and there is a correlation here between some mental health experiences on your part and what happened there for you with that show. And you've even written about it. You published a, an op-ed article called Why I Choose to Be Vulnerable. It was on the James Beard Foundation's website. And I'll put that in show notes so that on the website for humanity so that people can find that easily and go read that for themselves. But after you were eliminated from Top Chef 15, you, you know, I'm going to I'm going to read a quote from what you wrote, if you don't mind. You said, I knew that I was dealing with a serious episode of depression. I struggled with thoughts of suicide because it felt like the only way someone would finally pay attention. I was alone, scared and cornered by my personal demons. And then. Man, I'm getting goosebumps even thinking about this as well. Anthony Bourdain killed himself in his hotel room where he was staying on location to shoot. And and that had an impact on you. Um, I'll just get out of the way and let you take it from there. And, and what all of that means um, to the bigger picture here and no luck's given. Yeah. Um, I mean, depression is a real thing. 
and 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 many people walk around on the day to day smiling and you know being the center of attention and and but on the inside i mean they're they're battling and and they're fighting the this this unwinnable war feels like and uh a lot of it comes back down to your past you know have you dealt with the stuff that that puts you in that in that mindset have you have you confronted it or have you suppressed it um and and many of us you know you ignore a problem you think it goes away and you can only ignore things for so long before eventually that door just you know burst at the seams and comes crashing down on you and I, I think when when I look at that time of going back to film Top Chef Kentucky, uh, the mindset that I was in as far as, you know, what I was dealing with personally, what I was dealing with professionally, um, the insecurities that I was having, the the I, I was really just starting to get into, um, you know, therapy sessions and um, uncovering a lot of that. And I felt like the experience that I went through on Top Chef Kentucky really just um, triggered a lot of, of PTSD. And, you know, I, 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 I think we only think about PTSD when it comes to our, our soldiers and our veterans who have seen combat. But, you know, we have youth every day that deal with traumatic experiences, whether it's watching someone gun down in front of you or it's watching a loved one uh, be abused or it's being abused yourself or, you know, extreme, extreme, uh, scenarios of violence. Like this is things that happen. These are things that happen every day in in our neighborhoods, um, in our communities and here in Colorado Springs. And, and these, these, these kids are getting PTSD from it. So for me, um, that experience in Kentucky really just triggered, a lot of that rejection and, and neglect and, and the spiral that it put me in was uncontrollable. And I, and I think being locked in a hotel room by myself, not really having any communication with the outside world, and then being asked to perform uh, without really understanding where my mental state was, uh, was harsh. And, and I think sitting in that room by myself, you know, that loneliness is something that it is easy to 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 follow that feeling is is easy to just start chasing it and you know you add alcohol into that mix you know the, you can make some mistakes that are 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 going to be everlasting and you know I was in an extremely dark place that night and and that next morning when I when I woke up I saw the news of of Anthony Bourdain passing away in his own hotel room while filming a show and and that was i don't know if that was divine intervention or what that was but um that was a moment where i i knew i needed to make some changes in my life and and that's why i decided to uh leave the show at that time and you know not pursue the the rest of that season like they asked me to you've now met a lot of well-known chefs and i'm wondering if you have met if you ever did meet anthony bourdain and or were influenced by his books or you know his work on tv or anything like that yeah i, I never had the opportunity to meet anthony bourdain i've obviously read his books when i was younger coming up in the industry i think kitchen confidential was in every cook's hands <laughs> um in 2000 
and it was a topic of discussion at, at every bar and you know at every every kitchen you know line lineup but um you know it was a powerful book i i think there was a connection there that a lot of us felt you know he he really uh wrote um extremely well when it came to you know talking about the the dark stuff that happens in restaurants and he was ahead of his time for that and and that was powerful but if you really look at you look at the storyline of of what he was telling you you look at the 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 mannerisms of of the shows that he was on i i think the signs were there and and what he was dealing with internally you know i mean you look at someone like robin williams that's another one that yeah no one saw that coming you know it, it just the list goes on and on and on from chefs to actors to entertainers to everyday people i mean this is this is a real this is a real subject that that needs that needs attention. And the only way that you can help people with this is by sharing your story. You know, it's not asking, are you okay? Cause no one's going to tell you the truth. But I think once you start to be honest and, and share your candor, um, that's when people start to open up and relate because it's like, yeah, me too. I feel that I'm not crazy. Absolutely. You know, speaking of some of those other chefs, one of the things that I think about when watching a show like top chef, we mentioned, you were also on Chopped and beat Bobby Flay, in which you actually beat Bobby Flay. And I'm not sure I've seen that happen very many times at all. <laughs> but one of the things that that I always kind of wonder about is the relationship building, the mentoring, the community aspect of that behind the scenes that we as viewers don't necessarily get to see a whole lot of. And so like on those shows, I mean, you've connected now with people like Tom Colicchio, Bobby Flay, Graham Elliott. But then it's also the chefs that were there to compete against you and you guys live together in, in those things like, you know, Joe Flam, Tanya Holland, Chris Scott. I, I've seen you have continued relationships with them and, and done cooking, you know, special dinners and things. So what about those off screen sort of opportunities like friendships and mentoring and collaborations? What, what do those mean to you in these years since being on TV with yeah, them, I you know? I, I think, you know, you, you, you develop bonds with people, especially going through something like Top Chef, um, because you're living together and, and you're, you're forced into a scenario where, you know, you have to interact because that's what the expectation is. You're not allowed a, a book to sit in a room and read. You're not allowed a radio to hide off and put headphones in. You're, 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 they want you to sit in the kitchen and talk. So you, okay. you're, you're forced to bond with these people. Um, <laughs> And, and it's, it's very, it's a very small glimpse of, you know, your lifespan. I mean, you're only talking two months, but I, I'm a firm believer in like, if I, I'm, I'm always going to be me. I'm always just going to be real. And, you know, if, if you rock with me, you rock with me. If not, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not thirsty for the attention or, or I need the friendship. And, and I like when things develop naturally, but I know that, you know, you have to drop walls as a person in order to build friendships. You cannot build friendships with new people um, if you constantly have walls up or you create false perceptions. You know, you keep them at arm's length, they're, they're never gonna meet the real you. So, you know, I intentionally dropped some walls um, as I've become confident in my story and my past uh, to be able to have these relationships. And a lot of it is because I'm honest, I'm real. And, and I'm not trying, I'm not, I'm not looking for anything from you. 
I'm not, I'm not, I don't need anything from you. You know, I, I, if we want a friendship, you want somebody to talk to, then, then we can do that. Um, and, and a few of the, the chefs from the show, I've, I've developed that type of relationship and some from not from the show, you know, I've, I've met chefs on, on the road traveling and, and doing events and parties and, you know, someone like Kat Suji, uh, I, I have a great friendship with and him and I have never filmed a show together, but you know, we've done so many events together. We've gotten to know each other. And, you know, I called him the other day just to say, how you doing? And, you know, I'm here if you need anything. And I, I think that's something that's, that's really powerful because there's a lot of fake people in, in, in the entertainment industry. And, uh, you know, egos really start to explode when it comes to celebrity status and, you know, none of that's real. You still have to walk your dog. You still got to take care of your kids. You still got to do the dishes. Like you're still a regular person. So, you know, to not be approachable, I, I think is pointless. You were named recently, well, a few months ago now for James Beard as a semifinalist. Uh, yeah, for, well, first, congratulations crazy. on that. Thank you. But that unfortunately got pushed back because of the pandemic. It was, you know, the winners, I think, were to be announced in May. Now it's going to be in September, at least as the current plan goes. And I'd have to say that I actually am not sure. I mean, the the, the James Beard honor is something I'm only aware of because of shows like what we're talking about. And as a civilian out here who just enjoys eating the food but doesn't really know anything about what's happening in the kitchen other than what those shows show me, I'm kind of curious, what does that recognition actually mean? Now, whether that means something to you personally and or when you know another chef has received that kind of honor, is there a different respect level? Does it mean something to you within the industry amongst yourselves? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I, I cooked I cooked my first James Beard uh, dinner in New York City in 2008. And, um, you know, you fast forward 12 years later to finally receive a nomination is, is surreal. I, I think if that doesn't speak to how hard it is to, to actually receive that um, acknowledgement, um, you know, that, that's kind of my journey with it. You know, James Beard Foundation for us, the James Beard Awards is like the Emmys for, for everyday person that watches, you know, entertainment. It, it's a huge red carpet event. Um, everyone from chefs to, to celebrities to athletes show up to present the awards, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's a recognition of, of the best in your industry with here, within here in the States. You know, we don't have Michelin like they do in Europe. Like we only have it in DC, San Francisco, uh, Chicago. Like it, it's very limited on, on what Michelin is uh, here in the states. So for us, James Beard is our Michelin. It's a it's a recognition. It's it's a it's a accreditation that you, to receive that kind of accolade is 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 pretty powerful. You know, for me, being on Top Chef. Uh, is 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 another achievement but it's not an accolade you know i was i was a good personality for that season to entertain it, it wasn't really based on you know my amazing skill set of what i've accomplished as a as a professional it was it was entertainment you know james beard foundation recognizes your skill set and um you know to receive that nomination was was really powerful uh just because it's something that I, I had always wanted to receive and it took, you know, my entire career to get to this point just to, to receive the semi-finalist. 
you know, unfortunately I didn't make the finalist uh, that was announced, but uh, a lot of good friends did. And I, I'm kind of honored just to be on the list. I, it's, it's, I don't measure myself by recognitions, but that's something that I, I still feel has a lot of uh, clout uh, within my peers. Okay. That was educational. 12 years. And you have to go there to essentially show them what you got. It's not like people just come into your restaurant as a critic. No, sounds no like. it's, it's a variety of, of all of that, you know, to the James Beard foundation is um, a tribute to James Beard, who was an American chef that revolutionized um, cooking uh, here in the States, him and Julia child uh, were pioneers and, and, you know, TV and cookbooks and really bringing French cookery uh, and, and, and making it regional and making it, you know, what people like Alice Waters did. I mean, James Beard did a lot of things. So when he passed, uh, his brownstone was actually converted into the foundation. So okay. they only host, I'd say maybe a hundred dinners a year. And, um, you know, to be invited to cook at the James Beard house is, is an honor. I, and, and, you know, many chefs have graced that kitchen. So, you know, I, I, in my entire career of, of 20 plus years, I've only cooked there twice. And once was 2008, once was in 2018. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's an honor, but that's not how you get nominated. I mean, that's, that's an opportunity to, to cook at the house, but, you know, to get nominated is, is a collection of, you know, past winners, you know, board members, uh, it, it's a polling, it's a voting, it's a survey that goes out, you know, people that have eaten at your restaurant, people that have met you, people that have interacted with you. And and then they really look at, you know, who are you as a person? What are, what are you bringing to the table? You know, and, and what category are you being nominated for? Is it best chef, which is what I was, I was very fortunate to be nominated for. Or is it, you know, restaurateur or sommelier or best baker? There, there's so many different categories. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a, a number of things and factors that contribute to, to receiving a nomination. And yeah, that was, that was a, that was a dream come true just to, just to be a, a James Beard nominee now. But it doesn't, doesn't change anything. You know, I, I still have to perform every day. I have to show up. I have to make sure my teams are good and, and my business is open. Well, and that brings me to a question about what I see as a lot of hard work that you do, a lot of places you put your energy, but also how do you find downtime and what are you looking forward to? You and Tina, what are you looking forward to when all this stuff clears away a little bit and you have a chance to go travel somewhere, take a break? What does that look like to you? I'm ready to just go lay on a beach and, and zone out. I mean. You know, we, <laughs> we've talked about it a few times. I don't think either of us are ready to get on a plane just yet. But, um, you know, literally just a, a trip to, to Mexico or, or, or down to the Caribbean. You know, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to just hit up Puerto Rico or the Dominican and chill out for, for a week um, and just check out. But, you know, when that happens, that'll happen. It'll come back to life. I mean, we we've canceled a lot of things over the last, uh, over the last six months and who knows when it's going to come back. I mean, I had, I had appearances in Japan and appearances in Mexico that were on the table that, you know, I still have to fulfill those obligations at some point. 
Um, we just don't know when. And I, I think many people are in that situation. But yeah, I'm, re- I'm ready to just turn my phone off and, you know, have a week to myself. Understood. This brings us to our last question, brother. It's a variation of a question that I ask every guest as the final question of our conversation. And it has to do with what humanity is about, which is humanness and creativity. There's a lot of creativity in the work that you do, a lot of humanity in what you've shared about your story. And so my, the way I'm going to ask you this question today is what at heart matters most to you about how you live your life? So that might speak to core values or something or however you interpret it, but what at heart matters most to you? No, that that's easy, you know. And for me, that's something that I've I've really come to the realization the last couple of years, and and every day I'm battling with that. But I I feel like the three three things that are most important in my life are uh, faith, family, and work, and in that order. But I screw that order up every day. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a constant struggle to to keep it prioritized that way. You know, I, I really feel like, you know, any any time I'm off base is because those priorities are, are out of order or, you know, they're not on the table. Right. I appreciate this whole conversation. I appreciate you're making the time, brother. And uh, it's been so good to, to be able to connect with you. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Yeah. Looking forward to hopefully getting to the studio and, you know, meeting a person and, and being able to do some photos and all that good stuff. That was my conversation with Chef Brother Luck in today's Humanitude Conversation of Humanness and Creativity. You can learn more about Brother in the show notes published on our website at Humanitude.com. To keep the good going, follow Humanitude on your podcast player or by subscribing to the newsletter via the website. We're adding conversations like this one, full of depth and heart and vulnerability, regularly. I also encourage you to post ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else you can and to share the Humanity Podcast on your social media pages. You can tag us, at Humanity on Instagram. To contribute financial support, even just $1, to give a buck for Humanity, go to the website, again, that's Humanity.com, and you'll see the support link in the navigation menu. Together, we can cultivate a more thoughtful, kind, and creative world. And now, the question I ask you at the end of each episode, how are you living humanness and creativity in your life? I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanity Podcast. Thanks for being here.